Hello and welcome to Abscond with Ethan Renault. This is episode 24, and I have a guest that I am incredibly excited to have with me via the phone, um, and that is Dr. Christopher Yuan. Hey, Ethan. Good to be with you, brother. Hey, thank you so much for taking the time out of your very busy schedule to do this with me. Um, so Dr. Yuan has just published his second book called Holy Sexuality and the Gospel, Sex, Desire, and Relationships Shaped by God's Grand Story. And um, so I'm going to talk about that. And as an introduction, I want to kind of tell you a little bit about my experience with Dr. Yuan. And he doesn't know that I was going to say this, but um, Dr. Yuan was one of my professors at Moody Bible Institute, and he taught my Bible intro course. And Dr. Yuan, this is a true story. I I just began teaching myself this year hmm. um, down in Guatemala, and I was thinking the very first day of school, I was like, what do I want my first impression to be on these students? And so I thought to myself, I said, what, what are some memorable, memorable first impressions of teachers that I've had in my life that I still remember? And for some reason, the first one that came to mind was the first day of your Bible intro class. And it's because I specifically remember where there's like, I don't know, 30 of us in the classroom and you were reading through the names And every single student, you'd read their name, locate them in the classroom, and give them a huge, big, warm smile and say, hi, Ethan, glad you're here. And it was like the most genuine pause and smile to all 30 students. You you read the next name, hi, Elizabeth, so glad you're here. And you just had this big smile. And I just remember thinking like, man, this is like the nicest, warmest guy I've ever had as a professor, like he's not just reading through the list of names. He's, but he was like legitimately glad that every single student was in his classroom. And that was like the best first impression of a teacher. I think maybe I've ever had. So I just want you to know that that was memorable to me. And that's just kind of, I think a picture of your personality and your character. So thank you. You (laughs) (laughs) You know, real, it's so funny how, I guess the little things that might impact people and, um, but I appreciate you giving me that encouragement. Yeah, totally. So I'm sure I'm not the only student you've had to have that stand out, but, um, anyway, so let's get down to brass tacks. Um, (laughs) so, uh, why don't you tell us, um, your story? Um, I gave you a brief introduction, but why don't you tell us who you are? In a couple of minutes, um, your story. Because you have a more interesting story than most mm. people that I know. Yeah. So, so why yeah. don't you share that with us? Yeah, kind of probably unusual, and maybe even for your listeners. Um, I wasn't raised in a Christian home, but wrestled with uh, my sexuality from a young age. I was exposed to pornography when I was nine. Um, never a good age for. I mean, I guess it's never a good. <laughs> never. <laughs> There's never it, a good age for that, <laughs> right? And um, so, but definitely nine is way too early to be addressing and and touching on those things. So that was the first time that I recognized I had these uh, attractions toward the same sex. I didn't tell anyone, this is, you know, I was born in 1970, so this is back in the late 70s, and, um, you know, sexuality was nowhere on the 
um, on the radar screen. People weren't talking about it, so I didn't talk about it at all. I kept it hidden through high school, college, even the Marine Corps Reserves. I then, while I was going to graduate school, I moved from Chicago to Louisville, Kentucky. I'm from Chicago and um, living in Louisville, Kentucky, pursuing my doctorate in dentistry. So I was in graduate school at this time. I came out of the closet and I broke the news to my parents. And what's so amazing is that through that crisis, my mom and dad came to faith. Initially, they rejected me. Uh, but once my mom came to faith and my father, they did. They knew they could do. Knew, they knew they could do nothing other than to love me, uh, which is so surprising because the narrative that we hear today from the world is that Christian parents reject and can't love the gay children. I mean, just like um, you know the the, the the movies out now that are uh, can you know, talk about conservative evangelical Christians are backwards, uh, they aren't unable to love their children, but I had the exact opposite impact, where my parents rejected me before they, be before they came to faith, and it wasn't until they became Christians that they knew that they could do nothing other than to love me as Christ loved them, as mm. God loved them while they were sinners. Yeah. So, so can well, you tell me real quick, yeah. um, if they weren't Christians, why did they feel the need to reject you as a homosexual son? Yeah, you know, you know, my parents. Uh, I'm Chinese, so um, and, and Chinese is based a lot on that. Um, you know, your uh, kind of shame based, and so that was not. Um, you know, that was not a good thing for them, and and they. My mom actually gave mm -hmm. me an ultimatum. Uh, you know, choose the family or choose that. Hmm. Uh, so it wasn't, you know, I, I think it was um, kind of not living to maybe expectations that, that she had for me or, um, and, and it wasn't normal, you know, that, you know, parents just want their kids just to fit in with everyone else and kind of fit into the, the, the pattern or the paradigm or the plan that culture and society has for them. Yeah. So it didn't fit into that plan, and and uh, so my mom um, get, couldn't couldn't take it, and so she and she couldn't separate um, what I was doing from who I was as her son. Mm. And it wasn't until she came became a Christian, you know, never even heard of the concept that she was a sinner, that we're all sinners, and that totally revolutionized the way that she saw, was able to see who I was. That just as God, you know, like I said you know, loves us while we're sinners, she could still love me as a gay son. Um, so that was really important for her um, and her growth. Well, I wanted nothing to do with her. What I saw is kind of silly, newfound religion, and um, I wanted nothing to do with it. I w was in Louisville, and unfortunately I got involved in drugs um, and the party scene, and of course not all gays and lesbians do drugs, but Certainly, mm -hmm. that is part of my story, and um, and when I tell it, I, I got to be honest about that. Mm -hmm. um, so I got involved in drugs, but like my classmates, I didn't have much money, and if I was going to do drugs, I'd have to support my habit somehow, and I did that by selling drugs. I sold to friends, classmates, even a professor. Hmm. So eventually, um, I actually got expelled from dental school uh, just three months before I was to receive my doctorate in dentistry. So I moved to Atlanta, and um, I kept selling drugs. I actually became a supplier to other dealers in over a dozen states, 
And um, this whole time, my parents really had no clue that I was doing drugs, but they knew my biggest need was to know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. So they reached out to me with the love of Christ. I wanted nothing to do with it. Um, they came to visit me one time. I told them to leave. My dad gave me his Bible before he left, and I just threw it in the trash. That's, that's mm -hmm. really how much I hated God. Um, then they prayed for a miracle. My mom prayed that God would do whatever it takes. And that's a pretty bold prayer. Yeah. For a mother to make. Uh, but she was desperate. She fasted every Monday for seven years for me and once fasted 39 days on my behalf. Man. She prayed for a miracle and that miracle came with a bang on my door, opened up my door, and on my front doorstep were 12 federal drug enforcement agents, Atlanta police, and two big German shepherd dogs. <laughs> so I found myself in jail and I was facing 10 years to life. Um, I, I was walking around the cell block and uh, happened to pass by this garbage can, and I happened to look on top of the trash, and lo and behold, on top of the trash was a Gideon's New Testament. <laughs> I took it back to my cell, and I began reading it. And honestly, I wasn't thinking that, you know, this is going to change my life. Yeah. I really just thought, I've, I've got nothing better to do, so I better mm -hmm. pass my time. Yeah. But, you know, yeah. as we know, God's Word, it, the Bible is not just, you know, a bunch of, letters on a word is on paper it's not just ink um in a book it's the very breath of god and it began to convict me hmm. that i was rebelling against not only my government my my parents but against god as well um and, and an important thing that i that god began to really uh transform in me was my understanding that i had put my identity in the wrong thing mm -hmm. everything about me was gay you know, before I got in prison, all my friends were gay. I lived in a apartment complex that was 90% gay. Hmm. I shopped at a gay Kroger. I went to a gay gym. I bought um, a car from a gay dealer. You know, it was a, a wow. gay car dealer. You know, every everything. And, and the whole, and my world around me was affirming that. And it wasn't until I began reading God's word and the Holy Spirit was abiding in me that I realized that I had put my identity in the wrong thing, that that when I said I am gay, uh, that I meant that to be, this is who I was. Mm -hmm. But in actuality, sexuality isn't who we are, it's how we are. It's what we feel, what we do. So that was so important for me because once I was able to separate my sexuality from my person, I was then able to look at, well, you have behaviors that are associated with my sexuality and and how do we then align my behaviors with the will of God and God's word so mm -hmm. that was important for me to first address that before I address the sexuality and the immorality aspect because as Christians we often want to jump there but I yeah. think before we do that we need to address that identity so that was really key for me and you know that what took a while while in prison um, I felt called to ministry and um, applied to Moody, where where you went, Ethan, and and where I I went as well. But I was a few years before you. I went quite <laughs> old, so I was in my thirties, thirty one. They called me Grandpa. But yeah. I applied to Moody, and um, I amazingly got in. I, my references were um, uh, a prison chaplain, a prison guard, and another wow. prison inmate. So it was. So how long I, were you, know, you in prison then? I was in prison for three years, uh, a okay, little under wow. three years. Yeah. 
And so did you do undergrad at Moody or was that grad school then at that point? Yeah, I did undergrad actually because when I got into dental school, when I got into graduate school, I, um, I, I didn't – I never got my bachelor's. So I got accepted without my bachelor's degree. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah, so when I never got my doc- – because I figured it, I don't need a bachelor's if I'm going to have a doctorate. Um, mm-hmm. But the problem was I never got my doctorate. <laughs> so <laughs> essentially I, got, I had tons of schooling with zero degree. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so then you went to Moody and then um, you did get your doctorate. Is that correct? Yeah, so I, I finished Moody in 2005. And then I uh, went on to get my master's in exegesis from Wheaton College uh, Graduate School. And then I went on to get my doctorate at Bethel Seminary in St. Paul, Minneapolis. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. Um, So you kind of touched on something that you talked about in your book, which I was reading recently, um, Uh which is kind of how we – when we talk about homosexuality, we've kind of adopted these secular terminologies where we kind of conflate um, ontological – categories where you say like, I am homosexual, I am heterosexual, as if those are like types of human beings. Um, And and that's not a biblical framework for discussing sexuality. So can you expound on that a little bit? Yeah, definitely. And and, and when I say this, I'm also saying uh, even... For every so this is I'm just not applying this just to people who might experience same sex attractions. I'm applying this to everyone. So even the term straight, gay, heterosexual, homosexual, um, I, I think we need to separate that from who a person is. Right. We we could use those terms, although I would prefer just the opposite sex or the or the same sex attraction term mm-hmm. because it's it's not so closely associated with personhood. Yeah, uh, but those terms define our experience and our attractions. You know, the direction of our sexual desires, not describe who we are. And 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 the reason why I think that's so important, and and, and how I got there, um, is uh, you know just reading through uh, scripture and especially in the New Testament, how over and over you uh, we get the phrases talking about. Um, that we are in Christ, uh, you know, mm-hmm. that, that in Christ, in Him, etc. I mean, it's it's throughout the New Testament. Uh, so, the, so what the reformers uh, called union with Christ, um, mm-hmm. that concept uh, is, uh, you know, it's it, it's a very complex concept, but it is an essential concept, um, and I think it's really rooted as we go back into Genesis how uh, we're created in God's image. So, so I mean, I, I kind of developed this in my book, how I, I first say how just this concept of sexual orientation, uh, our sexuality should not represent who we are, but how we are. Because if we really think about it, um, if you ask a person, what does it mean to be gay? Uh, it still always distills down to uh, desires, affections, attractions, um, you know, related to uh, the direction of our intimacy or the way that we w- desire to be intimate with others. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's, it's still related to our feelings. And, uh, and so as I, as I strongly believe, our feelings shouldn't be uh, 
who we are, but it actually should more accurately describe uh, our experience and how we are. Mm-hmm. And if so, if sexuality is not who we are, then the question is, then who are we? And um, so getting into some rich theology, talking about the image of God and how that image has been distorted, but then Christ came to restore that image, that's where we get in this whole, you know, we are in Christ and, and you know, we are, uh, and our Christ is the perfect image of God. Uh, so Christ, you know, really came to not only forgive us of our sins, not only to uh, to impute us or to give us or make us righteous, but also to restore that image that is, has been distorted by the fall. And so mm-hmm. uh, that's why we're, you know, to be, uh, to be like Christ uh, for that reason. Yeah, I keep thinking of 1 Corinthians 6, mm. where Paul writes, you know, he, he lists off this big list of sinners, basically, yeah. and he says, this is what many of you were, yeah. you know, as if like that used to define your identity. However, exactly um, now you are something new. Exactly. Um, so I, I had a, a, a brief question, which is, um, would you say that your book is aimed specifically at Christians? Like, would you not recommend it for a non-believing friend or... What would you say to that? Yeah, I think I wrote this with a, with a church in mind. Um, I, I wanted to lift up the local church. I think um, presently there's, there's a lot of kind of other ministries that are focusing on uh, kind of how to be a good friend and, and doing it at the expense of, um, you know, the local church. So I wrote this with a local church in mind and Christians in mind. So I would say if you have an unbelieving friend... Um, maybe my first book would be, uh, you know, more of something that that could be in line for an unbeliever. But but mm-hmm. this kind of has the uh, presupposition that a person reading this um, believes in God, uh, takes the Bible as authoritative, yeah, uh, and has a high view of Scripture. But uh, I mean, it it could be for people who may think that and you know have a less than a low view of scripture and think that same-sex relationships are okay with God, you know, kind of the gay affirming so, mm-hmm. so-called Christians. So that, yeah. that this book could be maybe given to them to engage with. Of course, they won't agree with it, um, but I'd love to see more of them engaging with these concepts that I'm bringing up, the, uh, you know, bringing up the biblical text and engaging with the text. Um, yeah, absolutely. To, uh, yeah, maybe even bring some loving correction. Life. Yeah. And your first your first book, by the way, is called Out of a Far Country. Yep. Um, I forget the subtitle off the top of my head. Something like A Gay Son's... Yeah, A Gay Son's Journey to God, A Broken Mother's Search for Hope. Yeah. And I never read that one, but um, I'm, sure it's, yeah, you I'm sure it's great as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, I've seen it in Christian bookstores, too, and I'm like, hey, I know really? that guy. That's oh, cool. Man. Yeah. Man, um, that's awesome. Good to hear. Yeah, um, and one thing I wrote down as I was reading your book is I uh, was super stoked about your book because Mm. I wrote down it's – where is it? I wrote down this book is the perfect blend of philosophy, theology, and sexuality, sexuality, which is like Mm. a utopia for me (laughs) because those are like all the things I'm interested in talking about as well. Oh, man. I mean – Anytime I see the word ontology, I get a little excited. Yeah, so. that's right. <laughs> Geeks unite. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, 
Well, but, well that was um, my hope because I really wanted to fuse, uh, like you say, philosophy, psychology, uh, I'm sorry, philosophy, theology, and sexuality. And that really was my, my goal. And certainly I'm, I'm specifically addressing homosexuality, same-sex attractions, uh, you know, the people in the gay community. But I, I, I wanted people to almost be surprised and think, wow, this is actually for everyone. Like it's not just related to my gay friend or mm -hmm. just related to the Christian who has same-sex attractions. Um, I, I wanted it to be broad enough uh, so that a anyone could actually have some personal takeaways. It's specifically, especially because, you know, I included um, not just one chapter on marriage or one chapter on singleness, but a couple chapters on marriage, a couple chapters on singleness. And actually both of those chapters are some of my larger chapters. And mm -hmm. it was kind of for a reason. Yeah, and that's, that's the other thing I was going to say is – as I was reading it, I noticed like, like I'm getting a lot out of this too for myself. Like that applies mm -hmm. to me as someone who does not have same sex attractions. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think that, you know, that you can see that on the cover of the book, like you look at the cover and there's absolutely nothing about homosexuality or gay. Mm -hmm. It's just, you know, sexuality kind of for everyone looked yep. at through this lens of holy sexuality, which I want to get into next, which you know, holy sexuality, as you define it, does not simply refer to gay people not being gay anymore. In fact, that's mm -hmm. kind of the opposite. That's like the antithesis right. of what you're um, talking about. So, so can you get into kind of define what you mean when you say holy sexuality and what that means for people with same-sex attraction and people with opposite-sex attraction? What's that mean? Yeah, definitely. Um, so... Holy sexuality uh, really actually came out of my first book, um, and there's a small chapter toward the end. Uh, my first book was uh, like 32 small, fast-paced fast chapters about my narrative, but at, toward the end, I had a chapter, a chapter 30 that I called Holy Sexuality, um, and it was told kind of... I was sitting in my prison cell. Uh, they were doing prison count where the guards come around, and they count all the the inmates, which they do three times a day. Um, and basically, it's just you have to sit in the cell for about an hour and just wait. And it was kind of, I, I, I wrote it in a way that was during one of those times that I was contemplating this thing about sexuality. Because I, I and I would say most Christians also uh, kind of have maybe fallen into this trap where we've pigeonholed ourselves into the secular paradigm of heterosexual, bisexual, homosexual, um, yeah. or heterosexuality, bisexuality, and, and homosexuality. And we think that though that's the only framework for us to think or us for us to uh, mm. kind of to be in when it comes to our sexuality. So yeah. th that's why you have people who say, well, if homosexuality is not God's will, whether it's same-sex relationships, whether it's uh, you know the same-sex lust, which is sin, whether it's the temptation that though it might not be sin, but definitely leads to sin, and it is not God's will, uh, and it is a sign of the fall. So if homosexuality is not God's will, it's a sign of the fall. So then therefore people kind of they logically sort of, and I think wrong logic, but logically conclude, uh, so heterosexuality must be God's will. But then I, I had to think that through. See, I'm a thinker. I, I, I like to think very critically and analytically. Yeah. So mm -hmm. I thought, well, heterosexuality, let's, let's really, really... Let's not just take it at face value and critique it. And the more that I did, I realized that heterosexuality, uh, th there's no way that 
heterosexuality as a whole can be God's will. Why? Because it's too broad. Mm -hmm. Yes, marriage between a man and woman is considered uh, heterosexual. However, there's a lot of other forms of sexual relationships um, or romantic relationships that can be considered heterosexual that are clearly sinful. For example, an adulterous relationship, um, a, a relationship where boyfriend and girlfriend are sleeping together, uh, mm -hmm. you know, sex before marriage, fornication, that's sin. Um, you know, or a, a man that's very promiscuous with many different women uh, that can be considered heterosexual but sinful in God's eyes. So I knew that, I, that there need to be much more precision uh, to get rid of all the ambiguity. Because honestly, Ethan, we are we are swimming in a sea of ambiguity today. You know, and, and I don't. You know, you notice the cover of my book. Um, I intentionally put that black and white because. We live in a world that's of infinite shades of gray, not just 50 mm. shades of gray, but infinite shades of gray. Yeah. And I want to be really clear that God's view, vision of sexual morality is not only beautiful, it's black and white, it's clear, uh, and it's for our own good. So I, I, I was frustrated with that paradigm. I thought, okay, well, if that's not it, then what is it? So I went back, back to God's word open it up, and from Genesis to Revelation, I recognize that there's only two paths for that God has allowed us to, to live in reference to our sexuality. One, if you are unmarried, which that would be you and me, if we are unmarried, then how do we be faithful to God? Well, we're faithful by being sexually abstinent. Mm -hmm. However, if we get married um, and we're no longer single, then how do we live in relation to our sexuality. Well, then we are faithful to God by being faithful to our spouse of the opposite sex in marriage. So this is mm -hmm. how I define holy sexuality. Two ways. One, singleness, uh, I'm sorry, chastity and singleness or faithfulness in marriage. And that's right. quite simple. Chastity and singleness, faithfulness in marriage. But unfortunately, there was no phrase or terminology that would express or mean those two things, chastity and singleness and faithfulness in marriage. So I felt like I had to kind of create a term and I created holy sexuality kind of to juxtapose against the old secular framework, heterosexual, mm -hmm. homosexual, and say that's that's wrong. That's not the correct framework for us to think when it comes to Christian living and, and biblical sexual moral. Uh, so I came up with this term, holy sexuality, to more. That is, I believe, the most precise accurate way to describe what God is calling us to. Yeah, and I, I like that a lot. Um, and to kind of recap some of what you said, one thing I also wrote down is there's there's no other sin that you know, people tend to say, this is who I am versus right. what I do. Um, yes. You know, like someone doesn't steal a candy bar and say, oh, I am a thief. Like that's the core of my identity is a thief. Or like right. you don't tell a lie and say I'm a lie, you know. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I think that your goal or at least one of your goals is to kind of shift that paradigm so that you know, um, people with same and opposite sex attractions can both come to see like my sexuality is not who I am, you know, regardless of who I'm attracted to. Um, God's right. God's vision for humanity is much bigger than that. Is that right? Mm -hmm. It's exactly right. Exactly right. Yeah. There's. I know of no other sin issue where we have completely uh, conflated uh, the sin struggle, the sin desire, with who we are. Um, mm -hmm. And and I think we need to separate it. Not not to say that 
that sin can't have uh, ramifications on who we are, and 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 uh, and of course, you know, it's it does uh, taint and affect that. But it's not the core of who we are, and that then that's really important to dis- distinguish uh, the, the, the difference. And and how much of that do you think is a response to a culture which is so saturated in the sexual? Uh, I mean, sex is everything in our culture, yeah. and we see it everywhere, and that kind of reinforces that. And I think the church has kind of followed suit initially by bucking against the culture. You know, we mm-hmm. have like the purity, the purity movement from like the nineties. Um, yep. and I, I, I kind of caught the tail end of that. Um, mm-hmm. and apparently that did a lot of damage to some, a lot of people I know, um, mm-hmm. where it kind of had the reverse effect of like shaming everyone for even like having a sexual thought, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And there, there's not much in, be- there hasn't been much in between. But I feel like you know, the pendulum might be swinging the other way, where you know, like you said, churches are beginning to embrace all forms of sexuality and call them good. Um, right. So you seem to kind of be fighting for a, a balance, where you're saying like God made sex to be a good thing within right. the proper boundaries. Um, however, it's also not the be all end all of our existence. That's right. Yeah, I I, I think. You know, and 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 I, so I became a Christian, you know, early. So in the in the, you know, two thousand one was was when I started at Moody. So so that was probably you know the tail end of the kind of purity movement. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and and I I mean I think you know of course people meant well. Um, we we should not date as the world dates, um, which which I think I totally agree. It's just you know, swinging that pendulum so far. And and I think one of the biggest mistakes, um, that was made was elevating marriage as, as the kind of carrot that you hold out, you know, how you have the horse, you Mm -hmm. hold that carrot out. Yeah. Uh, you hold marriage out and not not actually, it's not just marriage that, that people, and, and so I've never gone through any of the, you know, wait till, I don't know what they call it. Wait till you purity, um, the, um, wait till you get married or whatever they call those things, you know? Yeah, there's a bunch, uh, like, um, friends first or... Yeah. Uh, what's, yeah, I know what you're talking about. I can't think yeah, of what it's called. Yeah, what's the term? Here. I can't think of it. We'll probably think of it as we go along. Yeah. Uh, but uh, when, you know, it's it's the... It's not just the kind of holding up mar- uh, marriage as a carrot, but it's almost holding out, like, great sex in marriage as a carrot. Mm-hmm. Um, and that might be not only putting too much pressure on on marriage and giving almost an unrealistic vision of sex and marriage, uh, but really distorting what 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 marriage is for. Because when we do that, we still make sex and marriage out to be a uh, we we make sex and marriage to be about for me. And if you take First Corinthians seven, what Paul talks about. Um, you know, husbands, your body is not your own. You know, yeah. you you know, your body is your your wives, and same thing, wives. Your body is, is not your own. You, you know, your your body belongs to your husband, and that's because we are one body. And so, sex, in other words, what Paul is saying there is not you know this kind of you know that you're you're to be a you know kind of slave and whatever your you know husband or wife wants you to do, you do you know not like that type of thing, <laughs> but in the sense yeah. that that sex, uh, we have to stop thinking about sex as uh, enjoyment for me, but mm-hmm. thinking about this is for the other. My, I love my wife so much that 
that um, you know this is for her, or you know, and the you know, same thing for the, for the wife. Uh, this is for him. So that's yeah. that's a key concept that um, that I think is much more helpful. Uh, but I also feel like um, oh, love waits. Is that what it's called? Or true love waits? Is that true it? love waits? True love yes, waits. That's, that's it. That's right. That's <laughs> it. I know something waited. <laughs> we yeah. got it. True love waits. Um, but but yeah. So I mean, just that phrase, true love waits. So well, waits for what? Because what if um, an individual, you know, it's God's will for that young lady or young man to be single for maybe his or her own life or maybe a good part of his or her own life, you know, for the glory of God. And so if that whole time is waiting, well then waiting for what? Because my, my, my belief is you don't have to wait, you know, hence that's why I like the, the phrase holy sexuality. You are, you know, you can be whole in Christ and be holy in Christ now as a single mm-hmm. man or yeah. as a married man. Um, yeah. and, and that gives it much more, um, I think, a, a much more biblical, uh, holistic uh, understanding of sexuality. Yeah, that's great. Um, it reminds me of, um, I don't know if you've read Rob Bell's old book, Sex God. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, a, it's a really, it was a really good book. Um, it kind of helped me out a lot because one thing he said is, um, he said that some of the most sexual people I know are single. And, mm. and I was, you know, because his understanding is not that sexuality is simply what a, a husband and wife do on their honeymoon night, but that, you know, in essence, it's like giving yourself to other people. So he, he was saying, I forget his exact build up to it, but he was saying something like, you know, these, these people who are single can give themselves to their friends and their family and their church. Mm. And, and, you know, they're giving themselves not in a, like, you know, sexual intercourse kind of way, but just in a relational, they're, like, sexuality is, I mean, you don't want to stray too far from, like, the linguistic <laughs> uh, yeah. roots of that word. But um, he was making the point that to be connected to other people, you don't have to be married, basically. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think that's a really interesting point. And, yeah, definitely. I mean, I, and, and I would, you know, say that, um, you know, love, I think we have so um, only confined love to sexuality. And, and I think, you know, and, and, and I guess, you know, the way I, you know, I, I'm defining sexuality more narrow about just with the sexual desires or romantic desires. But, mm-hmm. but, but as I talked in my book, um, and I think I even said in my chapters on marriage, Marriage does not have a monopoly on love. So, yeah, so what you're yeah. saying, Ethan, is totally right. That the, the reality that we all have a need and desire to love and be loved, um, and, and we all have a desire to be intimate, but that doesn't have to be sexual or even necessarily romantic. Um, and, and so I think that's... Uh, important for singles to get their head around just mm-hmm. like you're saying that that we can uh give ourselves to others um in friendship um and and most importantly i think in the in the context of the local church the body of christ yeah exactly and, and again i wonder how much of that's a response to the larger culture that we live in um and i mean christians have kind of gone with that. I mean, I don't know if you heard this um, at Moody, but um, mm. we, 
you know, we often called it Moody Bridal Institute because oh, yeah, you go there and my one of my roommates, I uh he was fresh out of high school. Mm-hmm. I was roommate with him for one year and mm-hmm. between his freshman and sophomore year at Moody, he got married. Wow. And a couple months later they were pregnant. <laughs> I was like Wow. Well, you know, he's nineteen. He's about to be a dad. And yeah. now I'm a 27-year-old virgin, so, you know, <laughs> very different ways yeah. of going about doing life. And and But I can't help but wonder if, like, that – we joke about it, but at the same time, like, how much of that is a reflection of we see this thing, that, you know, sex, like, mm. painted as – like, that's essentially the climax of every romantic comedy, right? Like, or if yeah, not right. most movies in general, like – like the happy ending is when they get married and settle down together or when they come yeah. back together, when they're, when this couple's relationship is restored. Even the thesis of the movie, The Notebook, I don't know if you've seen that. Oh, um, yeah, of course. The, the opening monologue, the very, very he end. says, yeah, well, the opening monologue, I think he said, when he's an old man, he's saying, I have done, I forget the exact phrase, I should look it up. He says something like, I have done the highest thing a human being can do. I have loved another with my whole heart for my whole life or something like that. And mm. it's like, well, that's kind of the manifesto of you know our culture. And yes. Christians, without proper thought and training and education, are going to hear something like that. And that's appealing. Right. That's attractive. And it's also tangible. Mm-hmm. So we're going to latch onto that and say, well, I want that. I want some yeah. of that. And so, therefore, the shortcut to doing that isn't to sleep with whoever you want. It's to get married when you're 20 years old and so that yeah. you can engage in that. Right, you know? and experience that, that most deepest form of love. And mm-hmm. um, so I, I, I wrote um, with a good friend of mine a response when, uh, in 2015, you know, Supreme Court um, legalized same-sex marriage. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people were writing different things in responses. Uh, and, and you kind of, I felt like they were, you know, two types one that was celebrating um, marriage equality and the other that was kind of grieving this uh, decision and, uh, in a sense, defending uh, the sanctity of traditional marriage. Mm-hmm. And what I felt like was really missing, and, and so me and my friend Rosaria Butterfield, we wrote it together, and we wrote, um, and it was published in the Christian Post and Gospel Coalition um, and uh, Desiring God and th- th- different other places, but we called it Something Greater than marriage. Yeah. And, and the, the, the mistake that like, for example, Supreme court, justice Kennedy, he wrote, uh, in his majority opinion, he wrote the highest uh, marriage is the highest ideal of love. Hmm. And that's exactly what the world thinks that like, this is the pinnacle of love. There's nothing more intimate, more satisfying than marriage. And, and I, I want to argue and I say, yes, marriage is an expression, is a form uh, of, in which love can occur, but it is not the only one, nor should we even necessarily consider it to be the greatest. Yeah. Because honestly, as Christians, uh, the greatest form of love is God's love for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, hopefully our love for God even should super- supersede our love for our wife or right. our spouse. Um, and same thing for our spouse. You know, I if I ever get married, I want to marry a woman who does not love me more than she loves God. Right. Um, yeah. And that's that's almost uh, uh, you know that's essential. If if that's not there, I I probably won't get married. Mm-hmm. Um, 
so I think we need to almost push back uh, in a loving way uh, when the world so idolizes marriage. You know, I'm sure you read that in, in one of my chapters that we really have idol. Well, you know, like at Moody Bridal Institute, you know, we yeah. idolize marriage um, as if it's the all in all. Um, you know, like we, we can't serve God unless we're whole and married, mm-hmm. and um, that's just not the way. I read scripture, you know, as a matter of fact, uh, you know, I, I think even a lot of churches are in error in that they will not hire a young man uh, to be pastor if he is single, you know, with mm-hmm. the false impression that single men are dangerous and married men are not, <laughs> yeah. you know, that's a, that's a lie. Um, yeah. But, but somehow with that expectation, um, we, you know, think about this with that expectation if Jesus Christ and Paul lived today, they wouldn't be able to serve in 95% of our evangelical churches hmm. today. There's something wrong with that. Yeah. Um, I've yeah, been rejected so as a youth pastor a couple times because I was single. Yeah, that's just crazy. Absolutely mm. crazy and not biblical uh, in my mind. Uh, yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, a couple other points you made that I thought were interesting were um, – uh, talking about the bad parenting leading to people mm. being gay, I, I thought yeah. that was interesting. You said bad, uh, bad parenting being the cause is more Freudian than Christian. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, um, I haven't thought about it like that in, in terms of, um, you know, uh, us thinking that way. Yeah, being from these secular psychologists. Yeah, it, it, see that that's how um, secularism and you know, humanist philosophies creep into the church. They do it without us even realizing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and uh, you know, so that's why I wanted to frame it in that way to help people think like, wow, that, that's, that's right. You know, so, and, and, it's, and it's been like this for decades. And, and I know it's going to be a hard one for, for people to break, but people, you know, you know, think about that, that, well, you know, a person has same-sex attractions because they have an absentee father or a dominant mother and, and although parenting uh, is very important and as parents, uh, they should do all that they can to influence and shape their child, but first and foremost, parents are not God. <laughs> yeah. Parents cannot turn a sinful heart uh, and make it holy. They can't make it one that uh, you know, beats after God. Only God can do that. Uh, however, parents can point people to Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the same way, you know, even if parents were perfect, so, you know, along with the whole kind of True Love Waits movement, um, I think also in the 80s and 90s, um, there kind of was this movement that Christian parents, if you just read these books and if you just do X, Y, Z, you know, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, uh, your kids will turn out great, uh, mm-hmm. you know. But I know so many parents who did that. You know, they're like, you know, mothers who say, I stayed home. I didn't go to work and I homeschooled my, you know, kids. Or I, I just, you know, I was always there when they need something. And, and yet now, you know, whatever it is has happened. And I just want to say, man, I mean, there is no guarantee for, uh, you know, for, for your child to, um, to be holy and, and to be, you know, fully holy in Christ. So I, I think that's um, just really important for us to realize that 
if there's going to be any root cause that we are mentioning, the only root cause is sin, whether it's yeah. original sin, actual sin, or indwelling sin. Um, and, yeah. and that's the only, and, and the good news with that is, you know, that might sound depressing and bad, but the good news is that when we recognize the real problem, we can then recognize the real solution. Sin is the problem, Christ is the answer. Yeah. Excuse me. Yeah, um, I like that in your book when you 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 really compared it to original sin, and I guess mm-hmm. the thing is like everyone's going to have a struggle of some kind, you know, and mm-hmm. and that may or may not be from how you were raised. But, you know, for some people, it might be it might be alcohol, it might be drugs, it might be porn, it might be illicit sex, it might be you know yeah. any number of things, greed, yeah. workaholism. You know, um, I think the the big difference is whether or not you see that as sin, and that's um, that's probably I've I've told a lot of people I get asked probably once or twice a week to address homosexuality, mm. which is why I was really excited to have you on to discuss mm. this because I've mm. never publicly addressed um, what I think about people with same sex attraction because it's just not something that I've experienced at all. Um, so I guess in a couple sentences, if possible, what would you say specifically to a Christian who thinks there's nothing wrong with homosexuality, that it's, um, that's good, that God blesses it, um, and so on? What, what would you say to, to a Christian like that? Yeah. So for a Christian like that, um, I, I know that they're expecting for me to go at the six passages and and begin, you know, explaining what it means, um, and uh, you know, I probably would be very well prepared for that because I've studied that for you know close to a decade, mm-hmm. uh, and I've studied the passages in the original languages. I've studied the context, so I'll be and I've and I've read a lot, so I've I know all the arguments out there and how all those arguments are uh, insufficient um, and incorrect. But I would say for others who may not be as familiar, know this, that uh, the person who, the, the, the Christian who thinks that God blesses same-sex relationships, they probably have done a lot of reading, and they will probably be, be more prepared to discuss those six passages than, than you are. Um, but uh, so... I, I always like to surprise people. I always like to see what they think I'm going to do, and I'm going to do something different. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So honestly, although I think those six passages, whether it's Genesis 19, Leviticus 18:22, Leviticus 20:13, and then in the New Testament, First Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, uh, I'm sorry, Romans 1, verses 26 and 27, First Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, or First Timothy 1, verse 9 and 10, those are all very important passages to go through. But if, let's just say if, we didn't have those passages, we still would, would have a clear articulation of biblical sexuality. And, and where? Well, many places. But the two main places that I would go to are actual parallel passages in the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke. Uh, I'm sorry, the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Mark. Hmm. be Matthew 19 and Mark chapter 10. And in those two parallel passages, Jesus was um, asked by the Sadducees about, um, about divorce. Is it okay to divorce for any reason? Uh, and, you know, what, what the Sadducees wanted to do 
was to pull Jesus into that argument about divorce and about, um, you know, whether it's okay to divorce, what if my wife burnt my, you know, burnt my meal or whatever, I didn't like it. And so, and, and so what um, Jesus did was answering the Pharisees and said that, um, you know, have you read in scripture? And he said, in the beginning, the creator made them male and female and the two shall become one flesh. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's, and he's quoting from Genesis. Yeah. And so here's the important thing. So we look at the context. Jesus was being asked by the Pharisees about divorce. Is it lawful to divorce for any reason? All Jesus needed to do was say, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. That's from Genesis chapter two, verse 24. Um, all he needed to do was to, you know, was to say that to explain why divorce is not right. Mm-hmm. But Jesus is God, and Jesus is never constrained by the questioner. And although the questioner might be asking of divorce, Jesus oftentimes will broaden the question and then answer a question to some uh, answer. Uh, a question that wasn't even asked. Yeah. So he, now Jesus was not only teaching about divorce, but he's actually teaching about the essence of marriage. So Jesus throws in, in the beginning, the creator made them male and female. What was the purpose? Because if you think about it, the fact that he brought in male and female in this conversation on, on divorce is kind of irrelevant. I mean, just male and female, that, that doesn't answer the question of whether or why divorce is wrong. Yeah. But the reason why Jesus threw that in there was because Jesus here was realizing the biblical mandate that marriage uh, is male and female, that actually this male-female complementarity is essential, completely essential to marriage, because without it, there is no marriage. Hmm. So I would point people to that passage and say, explain to me, why did Jesus say, you know, that creator made them male and female. That adds nothing to the conversation uh, to divorce. And yeah. the reason why Jesus did that was to teach the Pharisees a lesson um, that not only about divorce, but to teach them about the nature of marriage, that it's male and female. Yeah. Yeah, and even going back to Genesis 1, you know, um, we see God make these opposites that complement each other all mm-hmm. throughout the creation narrative. You know, you have... Um, the sky and the land, the day and the night, mm-hmm. the um, the water and the land, and yep. then the birds that fly and the fish that swim and animals that crawl. Exactly. You know, like there's this complementary uh, relationship in creation, in creation yep. and and the crowning peak of that then is is these men and women that bear the image of God, both yep. bearing His image in a different way, and and they go together. You know, like. Like yes. God didn't make you, you can't make ocean to go with ocean or you know like it's yes I don't know yeah. it just doesn't um, fit the way that God has made all this um, the rest of His creation to function and yes. the hard part is um, not coming off as a hateful bigot and you know I, you have the advantage I guess of saying, like, I experienced this. I can't be hateful mm-hmm. to myself. Whereas, you know, someone like me, if someone asks, like, what do you believe about homosexuality? And I and I kind of explained this. Initially, I would say, well, how long do you have? Because this conversation yeah. isn't just about homosexuality. It's about hermeneutics, and it's about anthropology, and it's about, you know, how yeah. we view God, how we view Scripture, how we view creation. 
Um, and that's the problem with answering that question so shortly is, um, you know, people want the soundbite answer, but I think that, and this is why your book is so helpful because it really gives this vast context to answering that question, which is saying this conversation isn't about homosexuality or same-sex attraction. This conversation is zooming way out from that and saying, how did God make humans? How did God make the world to work? How did, you know? um, You're exactly right, Ethan. Because I I think, so, you know, what's going to happen in normal, you know, everyday life is you're going to come across friends. You're going to be at work. You're going to be on the street. You're going to be on the bus, whatever, and talking with people. And they find out you're a Christian. and, And if you're kind of getting into more deeper questions, it is very likely that they will ask you your 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 you know your thoughts on uh, people who are gay. You know they'll probably ask yeah. you that way. You know because mm-hmm. people don't use the term um, you know same sex attractions or homosexual. At least you know not secular people. They will say you know what do you think about gay people? Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think about? They might say same sex marriage or LGBTQ. Um, yeah. What what you know what are your what are your stances on LGBTQ people in the community? And um, and you got it exactly right, Ethan, because. At the end of the day, the most important thing is not to uh, necessarily convince someone of morality, but the most important thing is to talk about these deeper, broader issues like God, like anthropology, who we are, uh, and about ethics, and about knowledge. I, I think those four things, um, because I, I can't really give an answer for what I think about this without explaining my premise, my presupposition. So let's yeah, without writing a book. <laughs> yeah, right. But but I mean, I think when we talk about those presuppositions, that is much less volatile. Because if you say, "Well, I think it's sin," well, you've just created an enemy. They, yeah. You just you made them think that you're this caveman, you know, this luddite that's that's completely clueless. Um, you, you know, you are, you know, a racist, you know, homophobic. Mm-hmm. Uh, whatever I mean, you, you, they start labeling you all these things. So it's like, well, let's let's have this good d- discussion. You know, before I can tell you what I think about uh, this, let me let me tell you what is my framework that I see things through. Right. I believe in, I believe in a God. I believe uh, you know that Scripture is authoritative. I believe that truth is absolute. Mm-hmm. And you know, so let's let's have those discussions because I think when you start there, um, you can then have that conversation. Yeah. With a, with a stranger or with an unbelieving kind of maybe acquaintance that you might know a little bit but not super well, um, we want to actually have a conversation, not shouting points. Right. Um, not a – not zingers, um, you know, because I think – I don't know. There's so many problems that I see in our culture today, and I think we're getting more and more to the point where we're not able to have conversations because mm-hmm. I think we want to have those zingers, you know, those yeah. one-liners that say, I just, I got you. Um, and who knows? I don't know if that's because of the kind of the social media world where everything right. has to be in 160 right. characters could add to it. Um, but I think we're getting less and less personal. And so as Christians, we need to recognize that and avoid that and get more personal by actually, like you say, stepping back, getting the broader question. You don't have to answer that specific immediate question because that's not the most important thing the most important thing is to talk about god and mm-hmm. and to um have them understand uh you know authority you know how, where do we get knowledge i mean it's all of that that is really really key yeah yeah exactly and then two hours later you actually start talking about homosexuality <laughs> but that's right yeah i think um 
And I don't want to take up too much more time, too much more of your time. Um, yeah, but no one more thing I liked is um, you. Uh, this I kind of put this into my own words, um, but you you talk about how the goal of the goal of loving a same sex attracted person should not be to make them heterosexual or yes. convince them to be celibate for life. Um, mm-hmm. Because and so so the way I put it is like our call should be to change their vision. However, mm-hmm. it should not be to make a guy like girls or to make a girl like guys. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. We should change our vision, like the hymn says, to to looking at Christ rather mm-hmm. than to seeing their sexuality as their all-defining, all-powerful, you know, state or identity to yep. define themselves by. Um, so exactly. it's, it's, it's about changing their vision, but maybe not in the way that we might think traditionally. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think we need to have a biblical definition of change because change does not mean that you become a Christian and then you no longer are tempted in any way. That's not biblical. Um, if anything, you know, change will mean that you will struggle. You will be tempted. I mean, I, I, I the New Testament is very clear about that. Uh, you will have trials. You will suffer. Um, and uh, but that doesn't mean, though, that you won't. Uh, you should be no longer in bondage to sin. So sin and temptation are not the same thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, so to help us understand that, uh, so a person who has same-sex attractions. Their goal shouldn't to become heterosexual, but their goal should be to become holy. Yeah, um, which actually, as a matter of fact, is the is the goal for anyone. And 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 I like how you say also how um, uh, you were kind of uh, you know paraphrasing what I said, which is great. Uh, you know, you said that the goal for a person who has same sex attractions isn't to become heterosexual, but it also isn't to be to be celibate for their whole life. And I know that might sound really weird to what you know what isn't that you know. What their option is, but but here's the thing uh, where why I don't use the word word celibacy, it's because celibacy um, has beca- has grown into a, a, a different definition, especially in light of all the scandals among the priesthood in the Roman Catholic Church. Hmm. There's a lot of baggage that comes with the term celibacy, um, and now celibacy doesn't just mean uh, not being married or not having sex. It's come to mean this this chosen lifelong vocation um, to be unmarried for the rest of your life. And I don't find that to be something that is necessarily biblical. I don't find that in Scripture. Uh, Not to say that someone can commit to that for for God's glory, but I don't see where it's a lifelong calling. Even in 1 Corinthians 7, as I talk about in the book, uh, Paul is not talking about a calling to be single, but actually the call of salvation. So if you read there in the middle of the chapter... Uh, so therefore, I just use the word term singleness. So what is it that God is calling us to then just simply to be holy? And uh, so that means today I'm not going to plan out what I'm going to do in 10 years because I don't I have no clue. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, I, I might not be here. Uh, I might be married. Who knows? But I may be single as well. And either way, praise the Lord. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to serve God whether in whatever condition I find myself in that I think is the message that Paul is giving in 1 Corinthians 7, that be content in whatever situation you are in. Don't try to be so consumed with changing that because 
Yeah, that's not as important. What's more important? Our call to salvation, that we are his and he is ours. Uh, and so that's that's the key aspect. So yeah, change that vision, I think, is a good way. Mm-hmm. Be thou my vision. That my vision needs to be Christ. Um, and, and actually, that fits in really well with um, kind of the, one of the last things that I ended with, um, having that, um, you know, Christ as... You know, fix your eyes on Jesus. I don't know if I give that devotion in in, in Bible intro, but Hebrews twelve. Uh, you know, as you're running the race, you have to fix your eyes on the prize. You have to fix your eyes on Jesus. Why? Because that's who we strive to be every day. That is our final destination. That is our end goal. And if Christ is our end goal, and if and every day we're focusing on Him, as opposed to as a lot of times young men will focus on God. God, help me today so I don't look at porn. Help, help me today mm-hmm. so I don't whatever. That's too low of a goal. Our goal has to be perfection, holiness, which is Christ. Yeah. And when we fix on that, um, you know, that I think God will align and, and put everything else into place. Yeah, exactly. Um, I'm reminded of a pastor in Chicago. He would always say, um, he would always say, right now you're a prostitute. Don't desire to be a Pharisee, you know, because that's mm. if you just clench your fists and try really hard not to sin, you're just mm. switching from one extreme to the other. And, you know, <laughs> God's yeah. still not stoked about that one either. So, mm. yeah, it's all about coming back to Jesus and and uh, just receiving from him, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, uh, thank you so much for your time. Is there anything else that you want to... Um, throw out there for the listeners before we wrap this up? Yeah, I think I touched on it a little bit. Um, and, and this is where maybe I think my my book might stand out a little bit. Um, I mean, I think it stands out a little bit in, in different ways. But also this, I, I do find missing in a lot of these books on sexuality uh, today is um, the body of Christ, the local church is missing um, you know, th- there's a lot of talk today about making these covenant friendships or what people call spiritual friendship. And, um, and, I, and I struggle with that. And the reason is because there's really little or no mention of the church. Why is the church important, especially for millennials today, is because I hear too many millennial Christians today that think that they can do the Christian life without the body of Christ. Hmm. And here's the reality. You cannot love Christ without loving the body of Christ. You can't yeah. be intimate with Christ without being intimate with the body of Christ. So, and I know people, I've even heard this before, even students that say, well, um, you know, I don't need the local church. You don't have to be a Christian to, and, and you know, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. True. However, uh, you should desire to be the church. But then they'll say, well, you know, I have my friends and me and my friends are the body of Christ. That's actually not true because, you know, me and my best friend or even my group of friends, we aren't the body of Christ. We are still members of the body of Christ. We could be a foot or a finger or a nose or an ear, Mm -hmm. but it's only the local church that is the body of Christ. And we need that for many reasons. I mean, for accountability, Mm -hmm. for pastoral guidance, for discipline, for um, even theological accountability. Yes, theological accountability. It's only in the local church where we are preached to and we receive the word of God. I don't know any friends that sit there and preach to each other. I mean, that would be mm. awkward. I mean, but, you know, so there's many aspects where we really, really need the local church. And that's why it's really important. And so I, I included that in, in as 
part of my solution that we don't necessarily need closer friends, but we need to live as truly brothers and sisters in Christ in the body of Christ as spiritual family, because that's the only true and eternal family. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Clark, you know, from Moody, he, mm-hmm. he said, you know, like, I could do life apart from my pinky, but I prefer not to. I prefer to keep it attached <laughs> to my body. But, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. But anyway, um, Dr. Yuan, thank you so much for your time, for, for taking the time out of your day to talk to me. You, listener, can find Dr. Yuan on Twitter at Christopher Yuan. That's Y-U-A-N. Um, check out his new book, Holy Sexuality and the Gospel, um, ChristopherYuan.com, et cetera, et cetera. Plenty, uh, plenty of ways to find him on the internet. And, um, yeah, this has been super fun. Thank you so much, Dr. Yuan, for coming on. I'm sure there'll be a lot of feedback um, from the listeners about this, so I'll let you know. Any final words or just want to say goodbye? Yeah, just thanks so much for um, doing this. I really appreciated having you uh, at Moody, and it's just awesome to see God working through you um, now as as a post-Moody alumnus. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Dr. Yuan. This has been Abscon with Ethan Renault and Dr. Christopher Yuan. <laughs>